Father God, it is uh, so, um, so good for our souls to reflect in the Lord's Supper uh, on the precious gift of your Son, uh, your amazing love for us, your deep love for us, and on Jesus who gave his life willingly for our sin. Uh, thank you for our great Messiah and Lord and King and Saviour. And Father, thank you for the riches of, of your word, your scriptures that, um, that tell us about this, tell us about your great plans and purposes for your world. Uh, we pray that you would soften our hearts now, that we would um, hear not only with our ears, but with our, the depths of our hearts. Please let your word sink deeply into us by your spirit, and please accomplish your purposes through transformed lives uh, as we seek to live for your glory. Please um, do all you intend through your powerful word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. 
a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Well, thank you, Shannon. After that, I feel the need to pray again, so let me, let me pray. Oh, our Father, what a, what a reading we've just had. And we pray now that by the powerful working of your Spirit, you might cut through to each one of us here today and show us something new of the glory of our Lord Jesus. Even for the first time, we pray that you might open hearts and minds to see Jesus, to meet him, and to be transformed. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, we are in this series in Luke's Gospel. What a fantastic Gospel it is, and opportunity to, to kind of read through this together. Uh, Luke's Gospel is all about introducing us to Jesus. Uh, Luke wants us who are reading this, he wants you to meet Jesus, to meet the real Jesus. And uh, today, what we just heard read is a bit of a turning point in Luke. Uh, up to now, if you've been reading through with us, everyone's been asking, who is this? That's kind of been the question that's driving um, the narrative so far. Who is this? Um, who is Jesus? Who's this man? Everyone's talking about him. They're trying to figure him out. And then Jesus takes his disciples away for a quiet moment in 9.18. And he asks them, who do the crowds say I am? So um, I thought I'd do a bit of my own research. I came across, oh, well, I, someone else did, has done it. I just found it um, from a few years ago about who Australians think Jesus is. So there's an interesting um, graph up, up, um, up there. Uh, so you can see if you can make it out. Only 57% of Australians think that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. 22% uh, think he's a mythical or fictional character. And the rest aren't sure. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? A little bit sobering. <laughs> um, almost a quarter of Australians don't think Jesus was a real person. And that's despite, actually, the, um, the, uh, it's sort of in the face of the, the evidence and the opinions of people who study these things. So there's a, there's a historian and a Christian author called John Dixon who, about 10 years ago, he made this challenge on, on ABC. Um, he challenged anyone to... Well, if, if anyone could find a single full professor of ancient history, classics, or New Testament in any university in the world who thought that Jesus didn't lived, live, he would eat a page of his Bible. That was his challenge. Any um, full professor of his, ancient history, classics, or New Testament in any university in the world. And no one's been able to meet his challenge. All his pages in his Bible are still there. And the point he was making was that even in secular scholarship, the people who study these things... Um, there's no one who thinks Jesus wasn't a real person. Um, they disagree about who he is, but not that he really existed. So that's quite an interesting stat, isn't it? That so many Australians um, think that he's, he didn't exist. But for those who did, they, this next slide is interesting. Uh, it's asking people's beliefs about Jesus. You, you probably can't make it out, but um, over, um, over a quarter of people think that Jesus is, the, the second one there, 
uh, over a quarter of people think that Jesus is God in human form who lived among people in the first century. That's pretty encouraging. Um, although it means there's lots of people who aren't kind of living out their belief, but that's, that's interesting. Um, and the other kind of um, two there, the top one and the third one, it's about 50% of people believe that Jesus was either a normal human being or uh, he was a prophet or spiritual leader, but not God. Um, so that's just interesting to get the kind of landscape of what Australians believe about Jesus, who, who, who people say he is. And Jesus takes his own kind of straw poll amongst his disciples about who, who people are saying he is. Um, no one is doubting his existence because the evidence is too clear. Um, but the way people are thinking about him is sort of similar to that largest group of Australian in this Australian survey. Uh, so most Australians think Jesus was a prophet or spiritual leader, uh, but not God. That's sort of the, not the biggest proportion. Uh, and who do the crowds in Jesus' day say he is? Well, let's go back to Luke, uh, verse 19. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago, has come back to life. So everyone can see there's something remarkable about Jesus. Um, We've been reading through it. You've seen Jesus. He's upsetting the religious establishment like John the Baptist did. He's doing incredible works of power, these miracles, calming the storm, healing the sick, driving out demons, even raising the dead. Uh, It reminds people of the great prophets like Elijah or one of the other prophets come back from the dead. He's some messenger from God. That's kind of what the people are thinking about Jesus. But Jesus knows that's not enough. He wants to press this further. It's not enough to just think that he is a, even a, an amazing person, even a messenger from God. He wants his disciples to have the right view of who he is, to really see to meet him properly. So he turns the spotlights from the crowds out there to this really interesting question in verse 20. That's what they're all saying, verse 20. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? I kind of picture it like, you know those um, old World War II recruitment po- posters or World War I, like with Uncle Sam pointing out of the poster straight at you and you know, kind of he eyeballs you as you walk past and um, we want you. Um, Jesus goes from talking to the crowds around it to eyeballing his disciples, maybe pointing to them. (laughs) But what about you? What about you? And Peter jumps in. He often seems like the first one to speak, and maybe he speaks first and thinks later sometimes. But he jumps in and says, well, he answers in verse, uh, later on that verse, he says, God's Messiah. He he knows that Jesus is, is not just another prophet, He's not just an impressive spiritual leader. He is God's Messiah. And that word Messiah, it just means someone who's been anointed. It means an anointed one. Um, In the Old Testament, the priests and the prophets, and especially the kings, they were all anointed uh, as a sign of God's um, sort of setting them apart and empowering them by his spirit. And in the Old Testament, as God revealed more and more of his plan and purpose to Israel, there rose up this hope of not just another in a long line of anointed people, but 
the anointed one, the capital M Messiah. This one person who would bring to fulfillment God's covenant, who would speak for God perfectly, who would atone once and for all for the sin of his people, who would rule over his people, not just for a limited period of time, but for eternity. And Jesus' disciples have been watching him, putting, and they're kind of putting the pieces together. These, these threads are all coming together in Jesus. Uh, remember earlier on in Luke, Luke, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit in his baptism. Uh, he claims that he is Isaiah's servant, this messianic figure who would come and proclaim good news to the world. He offers forgiveness for sins. He rules with awesome power. And all his disciples are around Jesus. They're all starting to see he's the, he's the one. He's not just another impressive man. He's the Messiah. And, and this, this what um, Peter says here, it's the first time in Luke's gospel that any human being has kind of recognised this about Jesus. Um, there's been lots of beings that have hailed Jesus. The angels have hailed him. Even we've seen the demons recognise who he is. But this is the first time a human confesses this about him. He is God's anointed king. But then something really weird happens. Verse 21. Uh, so this amazing revelation has happened. Peter's said, yes, you are God's Messiah. And what does Jesus say? He strictly warns them not to tell anyone about it. So this is like, like you can imagine the disciples being, what, what, what's going on? Why are you telling us not to? You're here. The hope, the, the one we've been waiting for is here. And you're telling us not to say anything. What's going on there? He's saying to his disciples, yes, you've got the title right, but you don't yet know what that means, what it means for me to be God's Messiah, God's anointed king. And if you start spreading this out around, no one else will, will know that either. They won't know what it means. Jesus is God's Messiah. He's come to save his people, but not in the way anyone thought um, people were expecting um, like a military king, right? Like a, a political saviour, someone who would lead the people of Israel out of their oppression under the Romans. But Jesus is saying here, he's, he's come to bring, not just to do, he's come for a far bigger liberation than that. He's come to set up a far bigger global kingdom. He's come to free his people and people from every nation from their true enemies, from sin and the devil and even death. And he's come to do it not by taking up a sword, but by dying on a cross. So that's what he goes on to say. Verse 22, he said, this is after, just after being declared the Messiah. Verse 22, the Son of Man, another one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. The Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he was saying here, this Messiah, this king, would reign through his death, through a cross, his suffering. Such a weird thing, isn't it? Like it kind of goes against all of our instincts. But Jesus is saying here, it had to happen this way. Do you notice that little word must? It's an important little word. 
the Son of Man must suffer many things. This is the only way. Because it was at the cross that Jesus like, won his great victory over sin and the devil and death. He paid for sin. He defeated Satan. He, he swallows up death forever by rising to new life. So this is what it looks like for Jesus to be the Messiah. But it's not only that. The shocks just keep coming. Because what Jesus goes on to say is, that road to the cross, to his death, is not just the road for him to take. It's also the road for anyone who would follow him. Anyone who would follow him. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Um. It says, take up your cross to be crucified. It was a kind of known thing. It was a shameful torture, and people had to carry their own crosses often to the places, place of execution, be subject to kind of public ridicule as they did that. If you saw someone carrying their cross, you knew what it meant. They weren't coming back. Um, and so this is, it's actually a really graphic image Jesus is saying, if you want in on my kingdom, this is what it's going to look like. Uh, it looks like death. And not just one-off, but daily. A daily kind of dying. This, it's, it's a moment by moment, day by day, putting to death of your self-centeredness, of your pride, of your sin, as you follow your Lord who trod that path ahead of you. It's a pretty sobering call, right? And I reckon especially in our day when we're so focused on comfort. Uh, we want everything to be easy and we want it now. That's kind of the you know, mindset that we, we just, it's the air we breathe in our culture. Um, but Jesus say, is saying here, his way involves daily persevering suffering and struggle and sacrifice. And I don't want to move on from this too quickly. We will, we will kind of get to the next part, but I, I don't want us to move on without us feeling something of the weight of that. Something of the weight of that. Uh, I was reminded this week of a short book by a guy called Howard Guinness. Uh, he was an Irish guy from the Guinness family, the famous family. Uh, but he was, um, he was an incredible person, and he started up these, he went around the world starting up um, Christian university groups, uh, including in Australia, but sort of Canada and other places, New Zealand. And he wrote this little, short little book. Uh, it's a pretty powerful read. It's called Sacrifice. Uh, it's a bit dated at some points. He doesn't always say things the way I would, but... He really took Jesus' words seriously, um, what Jesus says here. And I, I wanted to read a section from the end of that book. Uh, it's written to young people, so that's, uh, you'll pick that up, but it really applies to anyone who wants to follow Jesus. So at the end of this book, he tells the story of this World War I um, lieutenant who um, sacrificed his own life for the uh, sake of his battalion, um, and he sort of goes into the details of that. But then he, asks, he kind of uses that to ask this question. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? 
Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love for him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men and women who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it, who are willing, if need be, to bleed and to suffer and to die on it? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the pioneers for God, who count one human soul of far greater value than the rise and fall of an empire? Where are God's young men and women, and we could add, where are his old men and women, his teenagers, his boys and girls, in this day of God's grace? Brothers and sisters, by his grace, may they be here. May they be here. So let's feel the weight of that call from our Lord. But there is more going on here that I want to draw our attention to. There's much more, actually. Jesus doesn't just call his disciples to a cross-shaped life now. What he does is he wants us to see our lives, and this makes all the difference, actually. He wants us to see our lives in the light of eternity, in the light of eternity. Uh, this is, there is incredible light and beauty and fullness and wonder with him. Through his cross is his resurrection. But if you think about your life, if you think about your life just in terms of here and now, you'll never follow Jesus like that. Uh, Jesus says in verse 24, he wants us to think about what's at stake. Verse 24, whoever wants to save their life now will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he, come, when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. According to Jesus, the real Jesus, there is an eternal reality that needs to shape your life today. It needs to shape your life today. And he, he wants you not to lose sight of that. You could be the, the most successful person on the face of this earth. And all of that would count for nothing on the day when Jesus comes in his glory. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Jesus highlights being ashamed of him and his words. Um, He's saying that's one of the key ways that we take up our cross, to not be ashamed of him and his words. That's one of the key ways we lose our lives and take up our cross and follow him, is not to be ashamed of it, to be willing to speak about him to our family and friends, to, to give an answer for the hope that's in us, to share in some way the hope that you have in Jesus, that you love him, that meeting him has changed your life. To do that with gentleness and respect, but to do that. Um, British evangelist, uh, a guy called Rico Tice, he's got a great book that we've sold and I've just ordered a few more copies. Um, he talks about needing to cross the pain line when you talk about Jesus. 
needing to kind of cross the pain line. It's a bit of a kind of sporting analogy, I think. But he says this. I think that's the main reason why we don't do evangelism. Um, most Christians, when they first come to faith, they want to tell others. Why wouldn't you? It's brilliant. In Jesus, you're in relationship with the living God. You, you have an answer to death. You have an answer to your sin. You have a point and purpose to your life. But sooner or later, and in the West, it's happening increasingly soon, someone mocks you or wounds you or dislikes you. And because you're not stupid, you figure it out. I don't want to get hit. And this keeps getting me hit. So something's gone wrong here. I'll stop doing this. What he says in this book is something hasn't gone wrong there. This is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. And, and, and we've got to keep crossing the pain, the pain line. Taking up our cross means many things, but one key thing is it means in God's strength, crossing the pain line. Um, risking taking a hit, maybe to your reputation, maybe even to a relationship, uh, for speaking about Jesus, inviting someone to taste and see, uh, maybe even being willing to share a short testimony on our Easter video, still waiting for some of those to come in, so get them into me. Um, Doing that with gentleness and respect and joy and peace, but to do it, to cross that pain line. It's not easy. Um, I think since he wrote that book, our world is even more hostile to the gospel and to Jesus, our culture. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus has walked that road ahead of you. He has gone before. He did it for you. And his cross... His cross was a far heavier cross than any cross you will have to bear. His cross was weighed down by the sins of the world. And not only that, not only that, it's not just that Jesus has gone before us. He said it himself to Peter. He would rise. He rose again. He rose again he, and he ascended to his throne. He is, he is, we saw this in Acts, right? He is the glorious, unstoppable king of his unstoppable kingdom. Um, and he tells them, and that's what we're kind of going to move on to the rest of this passage. He tells them in verse 27 that some of them are going to see the kingdom of God. And, and then in verse 28, eight days later, that's kind of exactly what happens. He gives the three of his disciples, Peter and James and John, he gives them this glimpse. It's like this uh, preview, a preview of coming attractions. So they go up onto a mountain to pray. Verse 29, this incredible thing happens. Um, the appearance of Jesus' face changes and this blinding light starts to radiate, radiate out of him. Now, that in itself is, is really important. Uh, do, you, do you remember when we looked at Exodus and uh, what happened to Moses when he went in to meet with God in the tabernacle? He came out and what, was, what happened to him, his, his face was shining. But it wasn't a, a light that was coming out of him. It was a reflected light. It was kind of reflected glory from being in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, Moses, he's a bit like the moon, right? The moon shines bright, but it doesn't have any light in itself. It just reflects it. But Jesus, his, his face shines, but it's not a reflected glory. It's like he's giving them a glimpse of the light that is in him, the glory that radiates out of him. 
He, he's not the moon, he's the sun. He's the source of glory. And he gives his disciples this glimpse, this tiny glimpse of his glory, the glory he had with his father for all eternity, the glory he would go on to be crowned with in his resurrection and ascension, the glory that's going to be revealed on the last day. But things just keep getting weirder. You keep reading, uh, these two guys appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Um, Moses, the giver of the law, the first writer of the Old Testament, and Elijah, the great prophet who is the last prophet to be mentioned in the Old Testament, in, in Malachi. So they kind of span the whole Old Testament. Um, uh, Moses and Elijah, and actually the whole scriptures are looking, the Old Testament scriptures are looking forward to this day. They're looking forward to him, to Jesus, the one who brings fulfillment to all those promises and purposes and hopes. In verse 31, it says they talk about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. If you've got your Bibles there, you might see a little footnote. The word departure, it's literally the word exodus. And it's used intentionally here. It's... Jesus is about to accomplish the great true exodus, the liberation that the first exodus was always just a sign pointing towards. He would rescue his people from their true enemies and bring them into his true and lasting eternal kingdom. Well, at this point, Peter and the others, they, I love this, they, they wake up from their sort of drowsiness and they become fully awake. Like, not just kind of partially awake, but they're <laughs> blinded by this light, they become fully awake. And again, Peter blurts out the first thing that comes into his mind. He, he kind of, he doesn't know what to say, so he just says, oh, can, can we build you some tents? You know, he's going to put up some tents for you guys so you can stick around a bit longer. But it's almost as if halfway through his, his, his ramblings, um, he gets interrupted and this cloud comes and covers them all. And again, there's Exodus stuff going on here, right? The cloud in Exodus was like this physical manifestation of the presence of God, this, this sign that God was present. And out of the cloud, verse 35, comes this voice. This, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then verse 36, the cloud leaves. Uh, Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is alone. And it's interesting, this time Jesus doesn't need to tell them to keep quiet. I think maybe they're just so overwhelmed at what they've seen. Um, they, don't, they don't tell it to anyone, we're told. Um, they, can't, they don't sort of have the categories for it yet to understand it. Here is the eternal Son of the Father, the radiance of his glory, Listen to him. Here is the, the Messiah, God's anointed king, who would come into his kingdom through suffering and death. Listen to him. He is the one who calls his disciples to follow after him, to take up their cross, to deny themselves daily for him and his gospel. Listen to him. That's what God was telling those first disciples. But I just wanted to bring, it, bring us back to that question of Jesus to Peter, which is really his question to you. 
But what about you? What about you? Um, who do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Not who does your wife say Jesus is or your husband. Not who does your dad or mum say Jesus is. Not who, do, who does your friend say Jesus is. Not who does your home group leader say Jesus is. Not even, heaven forbid, who does Duncan say Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? That is the question for you. And, and Jesus is looking you in the eye and asking you that question. What about you? Who do you say I am? And he wants this whole um, passage we've been looking at. Jesus wants you to know that that's not a question you can just make up on your own. You don't get to invent who Jesus is. To do that is actually to be ashamed of him and his words, how he, who he has actually revealed himself to be. And if we take Jesus' own warning seriously, to do that is to put yourself at risk of being shut out from Jesus and his kingdom when he does return in his glory. Jesus wants you to meet him as he really is, not as society makes him out to be, not who you would like or imagine him to be, but as he really is. He is God's anointed king who out of his great love for you suffered and died, bearing the penalty for your sin so you don't have to, winning you forgiveness and giving you life. He is the Son of Man who calls you to follow after him, to take on his way, the way of the cross. He, and he is the risen and reigning glorious Son of God who incredibly shares his glory with you. That's something that um, the Apostle Paul, years later after this, reflected on. And I would just want to finish with this. Uh, Paul knew about walking this crossroad. He, um, God, God gave him a glimpse of the glory of Jesus uh, on the Damascus Road. If We'll get to that when we get there in Acts. Paul suffered much for the sake of Jesus. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes about this glory of Jesus. It'd be really worth going home and just reading the whole chapter if you've got the, the time. He writes about this glory of Jesus that changes everything. Um, as, we hear, as you hear the word of the gospel in faith, God's, what, God's spirit shines into your heart. The light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says. So as you hear the word, the spirit takes that and actually kind of gives you your own mountaintop vi vision of Jesus' glory. Uh, we don't miss out on seeing his glory. He brings it to life in our hearts. 
Uh, and and as, we do, as we do that, as we, as we catch a glimpse by faith through his word and by his spirit, as, as we, and, and don't, don't resist the spirit doing that in, in your heart, even right now, as you catch a glimpse of, the spirits, of, of Jesus' glory, as you contemplate that glory, and not only his glory, but the hope of glory he gives to you, that is what's going to fuel you for a life of cross-bearing, a life of daily dying, to sacrifice to, for him and his sake, to follow him and listen to him. Listen to these words, these beautiful words from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, the glory of our Lord Jesus, is eternal. Let's fix our eyes on that. Let's pray. Our gracious God, give us this vision of your glory, we pray. The glory of our Lord Jesus. The glory that is so unlike the glory of this world that isn't self-seeking, that isn't domineering, but the glory of the one who gave himself to suffer and die so that we could be made friends with you, be right with you, be brought into your kingdom. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, may we run with perseverance the race marked out for us, carrying our cross daily for Jesus' sake. And we pray it for his glory. Amen.